that I find a partner on the show, off the show, today, next year, it doesn't matter. My love story is actually the one I have with myself and the life that I'm building for myself is my ultimate love story. My narrative was completely stripped of me. I did not resonate with the woman I saw on my screen that was portrayed as me. It's a very surreal experience to be watching yourself on television and not resonate with yourself. I think that was a lot to do with editing. I don't want to curl up in a ball and fetal position. I want to tell my story. And I believe that the story of unlikability that we peddle as a trope is tired and old, and I don't want any part of it. And if I can speak on it, then I'm going to speak. And if one person reads this article, then one person has changed their views. There are places where our story is being stripped from us every day. And it might not be for 99.9% .9 of the world on an international Netflix show. But I do believe that it's happening to women everywhere. And if we can reclaim our stories, if we can share them, if we can be honest about what happened and how we felt and, and what we want changed from it, I think that's what's going to move the needle. I have not climbed my mountain yet. I have not even reached the summit level alone the top and I'll tell my story on the way up. I've gone through death threats for years now, cyberbullying. I am not phased. You can live life for you and when you do that all kinds of doors open and all kinds of opportunities come and that is the most beautiful flow that I have found. I want to do it on my terms I'm not going to do it. everyone to Diary of an Empath. I am so excited for today's guest. She's best known for being on season one and two of Indian Matchmaker. I know we all have questions we want answered. My next guest is Aparna Shiva Kramani. Aparna, thank you for coming on the show. I'm so excited to have you on and uh, have this conversation with you. Yes, thank you so much for having me today. So I watched both season one and season two and you were actually a favorite of mine, I think because I saw a lot of myself in you, and I would love for everybody listening to just get an idea of how you grew up and to know how you got on this journey to where you're at now. So I was born in London and grew up in Dubai as a child, and then I moved to the States when I was about eight. Um, I lived in Houston, Texas, mainly since then. So I've got uh, a little bit of the Texas drawl, a little bit of y'all that, that peeps in and out. Um, and, you know, I had a pretty normal life. I went to university here in Houston at Rice, then I went to Vanderbilt for law school, became a lawyer, and practiced for 10 years. And then a little show called Indian Matchmaking came along and kind of turned that whole script upside down. So basically, I applied for the show on a whim. I saw it um, advertised on Facebook, not advertised, posted. Someone said, my sister's the casting director. Are you single? Are you South Asian? Are you looking for a husband? I was like, yeah. And I applied. So I always caution people, you never know those decisions you make in five minutes, how they'll change life as you know it. So uh, go forth and, and make the decisions, but, but know that things will be a lot different maybe. And for me, that's kind of the kickoff of how I got involved in this show. Casting kicked off from there. The show would be taped. The show would then air in the middle of a lockdown in July of 2020. So eyes around the world were glued to their Netflix screens. And um, the show, you know, kind of picked up speed from there, as did my portrayal on the show, which was very polarizing. Yeah, and I definitely want to get into that, too. And I think that learning about you, learning your upbringing and the fact that you're a lawyer, it makes sense of 
who you are. I personally like that you're strong. And I think that it takes a lot more effort to really know who you are and stand strong into your values. And one thing I noticed too on season two is your mom coming on the show and the relationship that you had with your mom, or at least it seemed that you guys were really close. How is that relationship and how did that affect who you are as an adult and how maybe you view relationships now? Um, my mom's on season one and two. She plays um, a big role in the matchmaking process, which I think, you know, was the whole process of the show, too, that they, a lot of people's families get involved. That is a big part of South Asian matchmaking. Um, and I'm glad that she got to be a part of the journey, um, you know, especially in season two. I think she gives me some really sound advice that resonates with people about taking life one step at a time and, and doing our best every day and, and, and trusting in the process. And I think that for an immigrant mom, you know, I'm also an immigrant. I'm not, you know, I was not born here. I'm, I'm not first generation. But for immigrants, it's a very difficult thing to reconcile with, with coming to a new country and then also believing and allowing your child that, that belief that they can do what they want and dream big dreams. And so I've been very lucky to have that support and encouragement my whole life from her. And um, I think it, it really brought me to the place I'm at today where I'm willing to take risks. You know, I haven't practiced law in two years and season two conveniently cuts out that I wrote a book during that same period. I was on a book tour during that same period. I was traveling around India for a month. I was traveling through America for six weeks and I was, you know, on a full on book tour um, the whole time that we were taping. And for me, that was a big part of my story. And I'm sad that the world didn't get to see that because I think it says so much about the life that I'm building for myself and, and my ultimate love story, whether or not I find a partner on the show, off the show, today, next year, it doesn't matter. My love story is actually the one I have with myself and, and the life that I'm building for myself is my ultimate love story. And I don't know, I think that's the message that I, I'd hope the viewers would walk away from, but you know, that wasn't shown to the viewers. Yeah. And you did write two books. She's unlikable and other lies that bring women down. So I would love to know what even brought you to want to write these books. It's one book called She's Unlikable. And oh, I see. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm thinking it's two, but I would love to hear more about this. Yeah. So basically, you know, after season one came out, um, my narrative was completely stripped of me. I did not resonate with the woman I saw on my screen that was portrayed as me. And it's a very surreal experience to be watching yourself on television and not resonate with yourself. Um, but I think that was a lot to do with editing and uh, the way that shows are made. And I, as a lawyer in Texas, had, had no clue about that. And so the opportunity came for me to speak to reporters all over the world. And I took it, you know, other villains of uh, women who were vilified on television told me, oh, just hide away. Don't speak to any journalists. Just turn off your phone. These women who are on shows like mine, you know, Love is Blind and Bachelor, I spoke to them and I connected with them and they said, just hide, it'll pass. In three to six months, it'll pass. And as these journalists reach out to me over and over again to, to hear my side of it, I thought, I don't want this to just pass. I don't want to curl up in a ball and be in a position. I want to tell my story. And I know I will never reach the, I don't know, 60 million people, maybe, I'm guessing, that my, that the show reached. But I believe the story is worth telling. And I believe that the story of unlikability that we peddle as a trope is tired and old, and I don't want any part of it. And if I can speak on it, then I'm going to speak. And if one person reads this article then one person has changed their views. So obviously, like featured in the New York Times and Washington Post and the New Yorker and like really huge outlets, I knew I was reaching more than one person. But that was my goal and my intent that I didn't mind if I only reached one person, my story was worth it. And then when I got the chance to write the book, I thought, 
it's worth it. I will never again reach the people that hated me. Probably only fans of me will pick up that book, but what if we can impact people? And that's kind of what I wanted them to take into their minds too. Like when were the ways they were vilified? What were the ways? Where were they vilified? Was it the workplace? Was it their schoolyard? Was it their dining room table, their WhatsApp groups? Like there are places where our story is being stripped from us every day. And it might not be for 99.9% of the world on an international Netflix show, but I do believe that it's happening to women everywhere. And if we can reclaim our stories, if we can share them, if we can be honest about what happened and how we felt and and what we want changed from it, I think that's what's going to move the needle. And that's our collective strength. And we have to share our stories for that to happen. And so when I got this chance to write She's Unlikable, it was a memoir. And I was like, I'm so young. How can I write a memoir? And I thought, actually, this is the moment. I have not climbed my mountain yet. I have not even reached the summit, let alone the top. And I'll tell my story on the way up. Because so many women, especially women of color, don't believe that their story is worth telling until they reach the top of the mountain. And they're yelling down the mountain at the rest of us being like, this is how I did it. What what if there was merit and worth in that story and there was deserving of that story on the way up? And so I wrote a memoir based on that exact assumption that this story is worth telling because all our stories are worth telling. And I truly believe that. I feel like women in particular, when we are in a position of being assertive, intelligent, knowing what we want can be viewed as a bitch or too assertive. But yet if it was a man, it would be glorified. And I truly believe that because I was in the Marine Corps. And Mm -hmm. I have always been in environments that are very male dominated. And that is how that's how it is. Like if you when I'm in the workplace, and in my experience of being in a male dominated workplace, I've always looked at if I'm assertive, and if I'm doing this, I this is me, and this is doing the right thing. But I have always been viewed as you're, she's a bitch or she's too much this or she's too much that. But if I had a penis, I don't think it would be a problem. Mm-hmm. And so I really resonated with some of the things that that you said and some of the things that the media said. It was it, it bothered me. One in particular, I saw a post that you made. And one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast, there was a post of an outlet that said that you needed therapy. And I loved your response to that. I would love for you to touch on that. Yeah. So this um, outlet was trying to shame me or be derogatory towards me by suggesting I need therapy. And I basically spoke out and said that it's, it's a South Asian humor uh, outlet. And I spoke out and said, our community doesn't need this. No community needs this. But disparaging people or shaming them or, or thinking that you're insulting them by suggesting they need therapy means that that's the way that we view mental well, uh, mental health. And and the fact that we access those resources or get therapy for ourselves is then weaponized against us. And I'm not here for that. And I want people to applaud um, those who stand up and say, I would love to explore more about myself and, and heal my traumas of my past and become a better person through using talk therapy or other modalities. And um, I just wanted to make the point that that's not a weapon that we use against people, that we should be you know, encouraging it and sharing it in our community, that we should be normalizing it, that it's actually a beautiful thing that you give yourself. It's self-love and self-care and should be seen as such. So I wanted that mindset shift. And, you know, I have a small platform compared again to the 60 million, but I still believe there's worth in sharing it in our small platforms. Because what if someone goes home and says, hey, like, you know, I think it's great that we get therapy in our community. I think it's cool that um, we're exploring these parts of ourselves and trying to heal. 
Um, what if one person changed their perspective on it because of what I said? Or what if they defended or encouraged someone who was seeking that? I think that we all make a difference in our in our worlds, in our bubbles. And if we use our spaces productively and efficiently to have these hard conversations, that's great. What I think is so interesting is that so many people comment, not so many, but some people comment, oh, I'm sorry this hurt you. And I'm sorry you have to go through this. And I'm like, I've gone through death threats for years now, cyberbullying. Like I am not phased. Like I am bringing this up so that we can talk about it and so that we can, I don't know, like I said, move that needle. Like we're never going to move it if we just are the victim all the time. There's no victimization in in me and in my life. I just want to move forward and, and use it as a teaching moment for my community or communities of color or for women in general. And if I do that every day, then I go to bed feeling like, hey, like this matters. The things I'm doing matter to me. And that's my only goal, really. I think strong women can be intimidating for people. I don't I don't know why, but I think that some people are intimidated by that. Do you feel like when you were on the show, I saw comments from different outlets that were saying that you were too picky. Do you feel that you were too picky? And what's your response to that? I believe I'm looking for the one. I'm not looking for the million. I'm looking for one person that's the right partner for me. And so if that makes me picky or stubborn, I'm I'm fine with that depiction. For me, I'm going to take this very seriously. Like I'm picking one person for my whole life and I want to have a family with them. I want to grow with them. I want to I want to be a unit with them, a team with them, and I'm going to ma- I'm going to make that decision, and I'm going to take my time in making that decision. And um, I wish that we all felt that way. You know, so many people want women to settle and compromise. Oh, you're 29; it's time to get married. You're about to turn 30; you're going to implode if you're not married. Or oh, this guy seems nice enough. Why don't you just give him a chance? Oh, he doesn't want kids, but you want kids. You could change his mind. I'm like, wait, wait, why are we telling women these lies? Like, that's the title of my book. She's unlikable and other lies that bring women down. We literally constantly tell women lies that bring them down. And and I don't know why we do that as a society. Women do it to each other. Like, mm-hmm. I've had dating advice from some of my friends that are like, you know, if the guy's like super boring, just zone out. And then when you come back, you know, to him, um, you know, just laugh a little bit and, and ask questions about what he's saying. Cause obviously you don't know what he's saying and, um, he'll think you're interested in what he's saying. I'm like, my friend who told me that went to Harvard business. Like I was like, this is the advice that we're giving each other to make ourselves more likable to men on a date. I was like, I don't want to zone out on a, on a man and then come back to him, giggle and ask him questions. I, I want to have a supportive, loving relationship with my partner. And I want that to start in our first you know, communications with each other. So maybe I just looked at the world too practically and I still do. But um, if they want to call me picky, yeah, maybe I am. Maybe I take this decision very seriously and I'm looking for one person. I think it's okay to be picky. I consider myself a picky person because I know what I bring to the table and I'm open-minded, but it's about compatibility. Sometimes you're just not compatible and it's like, why waste your time? There are so many people that stay in unhealthy relationships or uncompatible relationships and they're miserable for years. And then it's like they're in their thirties or forties now trying to navigate life. And I don't want to waste my time. So I'm right there with you. I don't feel like for me, if, if we're not compatible, I'd rather just see it up front and just not waste my time. It's honest and it's fair. I think so too. Um, And I think that it's the right thing to do for even for the other person. So are you single right now or are you dating? 
Side note, did you guys know that I'm not only a therapist, but I'm also a professional tarot reader? It's not exactly me hovering over a crystal ball telling your future. It's a tool to connect with your guides and your higher self to help you in certain areas of your life. Tarot genuinely changed my life and it can potentially change yours too. Click on the link in this podcast for more info. Okay, back to the podcast. I am single. I am open to meeting people and people are introducing me. That's kind of the modality that I'm using right now. I'm not on dating apps, but um, I'm telling people like, hey, I'm ready to meet someone and and they're they're coming through. So we'll see. Um, no one's special right now, but that could change. You know, I, I love that meme that always starts circulating around New Year's that says six months from now, you never know where you'll be spiritually, mentally or physically. I believe mm-hmm. that at any moment. So who knows? Maybe love's right around the corner. And you're keeping yourself open to that. And I think that when you're kind of spiritually aligning yourself and open to what comes in, that is when you'll attract that. And speaking of spirituality, I love how open you were about your own spirituality on the show. Another thing that I really resonated with, and you used astrology a lot to kind of navigate your dating. How, how does that impact your life? Is that something that's really important to you? Um, it's a part of my life, and I have a very good friendship with my astrologer outside of her being my astrologer. We were actually just friends, um, primarily, and um, I think it's an interesting tool to use, but I use it as a tool. I don't take it as truth. Even my astrologer on the show, Sophie, says, um, you know, we have agency. So let's say they always say things like, oh, your window is open, hypothetically, to meet someone this month. Well, yeah, if I'm out and about and keeping an open mind and telling people, hey, I want to meet someone, then yeah, I might meet the right guy. You know, astrologically, it might be the right time. If I choose by my own agency to lock myself in a room and write all month, because, you know, right now I'm working on a screenplay, a movie. If I chose that for this month, um, then no, I wouldn't meet anyone. Like you have choices, you have decision making, you have the ability to to think for yourself. You know, actually on the show, I'm not sure if the viewer sees this, but Sophie says I'm a, I'm a bad match with my date and I proceed to go on a second date with him. Um, and off camera, you know, we continued, you know, chatting and getting to know each other, even though I was told off the bat, this guy's not going to work. He's not a good fit for you. These are all the reasons why. And I said, hmm, he seems nice. I'm going to try. I had agency. So I think that's something that I always take with a grain of salt um, and everyone should when they're doing astrology, that we we are always the masters of our own destiny to a certain extent and, right. and nothing in the skies or the heavens or wherever can change that. Yeah, I always tell my clients because I do uh, tarot readings and astrology as well. I always tell my clients, you still have autonomy over your decision. So there's not anything that's like written in stone. These things could happen. And now you might change the timeline. Maybe it'll happen a year from now. Maybe it'll happen two years from now. But um, I do think, as you said, it's a tool. And I think it could be a really useful tool to navigate even getting to know yourself. So I, I just love that you have that connection. And and uh, I love that you portrayed that on the show as well. How do you feel like going through the matchmaking process was different than traditional dating? So I do it two ways, right? So season one, I tried traditional matchmaking with the matchmaker, and that went very poorly for me. Um, she did not align with my values. She did not view gender equality the same way, casteism, colorism, heightism. We obviously had friction on um, basically all of my values. And so on season two, I go a different route. You know, the show is called Indian Matchmaking. 
not Indian matchmaker. And a lot of people call the show Indian matchmaker. And I'm like, no, 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 this is about the matchmaking in our community. And one of the ways that we matchmake in our community is through our friends. And so in season two, you see me elect to not work with the matchmaker, even though everyone works with her. I do not. And I say that's, you know, a boundary I'm drawing. That's not energy I want. But I love matchmaking and I love my culture. And I love that people in my culture are so invested in my love story to the point where co-workers, uh, the man next to me on the plane, and in the case of the show, what viewers see is a friend of mine from another Netflix show sets me up with her cousin. That is a beautiful part about our community. And I wanted to share that. And I'm glad that the viewers got this alternate view of matchmaking because I do think it can look many different ways and it can be successful or unsuccessful in many different ways. And um, I'm glad that my story kind of mimicked and showed um, a different part of it for, for our culture, for the South Asian culture. I did see a difference from season one to season two, at least with how it was portrayed. Do you feel like there was a difference or maybe even things that you learned from the time that season one was aired to the time that Susan season two was aired? I mean, I quit my job as a lawyer after season one and I moved to a new city in New York and I made new friends and I quit my career as I knew it at the height of my career. And I started writing. I wrote the book. I published the book. I I decided to live life on my own terms. And that was the biggest lesson that like no one is paying your bills out there. So their opinions really don't change your lifestyle in any way. And that, you know, you can live life for you. And when you do that, all kinds of doors open and all kinds of opportunities come. And that is the most beautiful flow that I have found. And maybe that came from the show. Maybe that came from the pandemic. It was an interesting time, right? July of 2020 was a moment where so many of us were reevaluating the world as we knew it and how we wanted to live in it and how we wanted to show up authentically for ourselves in that world. Um, and so I think that that was also a big part of my journey and, and all those things came together. Um, and, you know, it obviously made a big difference when season two's opportunity came around. And I said, I want to do it on my terms. Or I'm not going to do it. Like if someone had said you have to work with a matchmaker to be on Indian matchmaking, I would have said, no, thank you. I would rather be alone and not share my story than compromise my boundaries. And maybe that would have been different three years ago. I write about that and she's unlikable that there's so many times along the way that I felt so stripped of my agency or my comfort or my security in the process. And, and I had to really reconcile that with, with how I wanted to proceed with a second season of the show. So you mentioned that you felt that you were portrayed unfairly. Mm -hmm. How do you feel that you were portrayed unfairly compared to how you view what really happened? Well, I mean, that's like a big premise of my book. I go through all the different ways that um, my portrayal was not accurate. Um, it wasn't accurate to who I am as a person or to my storyline. And it, it's a tired trope. Like I said, this trope is, is it's, it works because we allow it to work. And what I'm trying to also do through my platform and my conversations with people is let's consume media more responsibly. Let's understand that shows are made to entertain us, but they are not absolute truths. And let's also realize that that's the same for all of our outlets nowadays. So many of us watch the news and we're like, it's true. And I'm like, oh, you're a Republican, you watch Fox. Oh, you're a Democrat, you watch CNN. Oh, you're from England, you watch BBC. Like we all watch the outlets that we want to grab information from. And then we go the next step, which is so unnecessary and be like, that's true. Mm -hmm. And so you're choosing to watch Indian matchmaking. You're watching 30 minutes of my edited life and you're saying it's true. I know everything about this woman now. I know exactly who she is. She needs therapy. She's people, are, um, all these psychotherapists are coming on and they're like, 
you know, she's like this and that. I'm like, no, no, no. The portrayal of me is like this or that. And it is a good tool for you to use to teach something like attachment theory, but it is not me. And there was like this huge blurred conception in our society. And I really think that we have to do better in, in, in talking about it and in bringing it to light um, so that we become more responsible consumers of media. Oh, I agree 100%. I think that people want to believe the fantasy of what's pictured because they get really invested, right? And they want to believe what's in front of them. But the reality is things are edited down. You cannot possibly know someone, their their personality, and especially diagnoses. Psychotherapists need to be very careful on percepting someone as or perceiving somebody as they have this diagnosis or that diagnosis, which is unethical. But, you know, this is the reality that we live in when it comes to social media and people want to portray their characters as they see fit, almost reflective of maybe themselves or things that they've been through. And, you know, it's just sad that that's the type of reality that we live in. But I love that people are talking about it now. Like Shake from Love and Blind was completely vilified and and he's, you know, gone on a personal campaign to speak up for himself. And and now that the show is, you know, you know, some people are saying that the show is obviously falling apart as it seems and, and the things that he said all along are true. They're like, oh wait a second. So it does take really strong people who are willing to go against the grain and speak about it on their own platforms and start these conversations. And um I think that they're very valid and, and they're very important. Yeah. And we have something called confirmation bias too. When you have, you know, a group of people or even one group, one person who thinks a certain way and people kind of start latching onto that as well. And so that doesn't help it. And yeah, speaking of shake, I went on his podcast and we talked a little bit about that as well. And I, I do agree that there are people who they want to be the villain. They want to be portrayed as a certain way to help ratings. I mean, that's every show, even every Disney show that you see, every Disney movie, everybody's got a villain. Well, the editors want it to happen. The people on the shows do not want it to happen. Right, the people right. The on the shows want their stories authentically told because they see value and merit in their story. The editors feel differently. Do you have any regrets from the show or being on the show? No, I never have regrets. It's not my personality type. It's not who I am. I believe that I've learned so much from all of my regrets. I mean, someone was like, do you regret being a lawyer for 10 years? You hated it. And I'm like, no. I don't. I mean, of course, I would have loved to have had a different, you know, tenure experience. Um, you know, would I have loved to have had a more positive experience with the matchmaker? Sure. But I didn't. And what did it teach me about boundaries? You know, everything has a lesson attached to it that is so invaluable. And if you can see that lesson and if you can grow from it, then I think that you're doing yourself the greatest service of them all. So regretting it is is really not helpful. I love that. Yeah, that's very eloquently put. I feel the same way that everything that you do, no matter how traumatic, no matter how bad, there's always lessons that are there for you to learn. But it's up to you to learn the lessons because people go through life and they don't learn anything. And guess what? The universe is going to continue to present you with the same issues if you don't learn the lessons that need to be learned. Said so well. Said so well. You will repeat it until you break it. So it's your choice. Do you want to break that cycle now or do you want to wait six years, nine years, 14 years? Exactly. And so you're matchmaking now. Are you still doing it? I am. I'm working on um, a a whole group of forms that were submitted. I expected maybe, you know, 40 or 50 people. We got over 500 forms, uh, people that are very interested in me being their matchmaker. And I'm loving it. It's taking a bit of time to go through it because I have to sort all kinds of things, Um, you know, age, uh, religious preferences. We were trying to be very inclusive, too, and not adds levels of, of difficulty in matchmaking, but I think it's worth it. Like I want to see 
our community matching LGBTQ, differently abled, you know, Muslim, Sikh, Christian, um, Jewish, Hindu, they all exist in India and South Asia. And they have been largely ignored through this process thus far on your television screen. And so I wanted to give them a moment to say, like, your love matters. Like, your love is as important as anyone else's. And so that's the kind of matchmaking I want to do as well as, you know, just a heterosexual couple too, South Asian. And so I think that it's it's been a, it's a journey. I'm still on it. I'm working hard at those forms. And hopefully I can do some good matchmaking. Oh, I love that. That's beautiful. So what made you want to do the matchmaking? Was it just one day you're like, you know what, I I saw what happened to me, I want to have more diversity with this, and I can be the one to do it? Or did, did an opportunity just present itself? I've always kind of match made and I talk about that on the show. I was telling my first date actually about the template that I have where if I went on a good first date, and it it was good, but not for me, but the person was a nice person. I would say to them, like, hey, like when they texted me for a second day, I would say, hey, like in the spirit of online dating, like this isn't really, uh, you know, going to work between us, I don't think. But I want to be honest with you. I love X, Y and Z, three things about you. I love that you run and that you're so dedicated to it. I love that you're close to your family and I love that you, you know, want to travel to Southeast Asia next year. I have a friend. She has similar interests to you. Would you like me to connect you two? I think you guys would, would love meeting each other. She's also single. I did this maybe like 10 or 12 times and all 10, 12 times, all dozen times, the other person said, yes, I want to be introduced to that person. Thank you. And I set these people up on dates and I truly believe that good people just need to meet each other in this world. So unless the person was like a huge red flag and treated me Mm -hmm. poorly or like did something that was just egregious, I was like, you're good. You're just not for me. Because what did I say earlier? I'm looking for the one and I want them to be looking for the one too. And I wanted to be honest after the first date that if I wasn't feeling it, I could still appreciate them as a human being. And so I think I've always done it. And then the opportunity came to work with the juggernaut and actually get a proper submission in of people, uh, South Asians around the U.S. that are really interested in this. And we got people ranging from age 22 to like 45. And um, they're excited. They want this service. I think that our community craves it. And it craves it in a way that's also progressive and aligned with our values. And we haven't really seen a lot of that yet. So if I can be the first taste of it for them, I would be honored. I love that. I, I respect that so much, even just the way you communicate, because and that to me, it's like I can resonate so much with how you communicate with people and how you're just your authentic self just to say, hey, I had a great time with you. I love this about you, but I don't think we're compatible, but I might know somebody who is. That's really respectable. And it's something that we don't see that much in dating. And a lot of people are afraid to communicate their needs and just afraid to communicate what they want. When in reality, if you just communicate, you guys can save each other so much time. And it's good practice. Like some people really are scared to just say, I'm not interested and instead would rather just ghost somebody Mm -hmm. or never talk to them again. So I think that's so respectable for you. You know, I know you got the matchmaking going on. Where do you see your future going at this point for the next like five or 10 years? Hopefully I meet someone wonderful soon. I want a family for myself. That's my personal life. Um, on the professional side, I'm writing a screenplay right now, a movie. It's almost finished. I'm going to be turning wow. it into a, a network that I'm working with already in development. I'm also developing my own docu-series. I have a production team, an amazing director, and amazing producers. And I want to see that come to life. I think that there are stories to tell, and I want to tell them for myself and for my community. I want to see so much more media representation of my community, and I think I can be a part of that. And so 
when I boil it down, I want to story tell. I want to build a beautiful life of happiness for myself and I want to story tell. That's beautiful. And I think you are the right person to do that. And you know, what's amazing is that even though you began as a lawyer, that really set the tone for where you're at now. And kind of even knowing the legalities, knowing the background, being firm with your boundaries, you know, having the upbringing that you did, going on the show, all of this led you exactly to where you are right now. And I'm so excited to see where your future leads and for you to just be this role model for a uh, a group of people that maybe it's lacking right now. So I'm so excited for you and I can't wait to see where your journey leads you. And I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show. My last question in a tradition of the show is I always ask people, what advice would you give to your younger self? Oh, wow. That's a tough one. I think I would tell my younger self that every decision is not so monumental. Do the best you have in that moment with the resources and knowledge you have in that moment to make the decision and move forward. I think there were so many times I found myself stuck, you know, um, as an immigrant woman, especially in this notion that I have to be stable or that I have to do the right thing or I have to plan my future. But really, I should have just been living through my gut and my heart and making the best decisions for myself along the way and not putting that pressure on myself. I would have been able to do so much more. Uh, that was so much more fulfilling for myself. So that's the advice I would give my younger self. Don't don't take it so seriously and do the best you can with what you have in that moment and trust that it's going to lead you to the next step and then the next step and then the next step. I love that. Parna, thank you so much for coming on the show and just blessing me with your time and your energy. I've learned so much about you and I cannot wait to see what you do in the future. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me today. It's been so special.